You got any like talents? Like hidden talents? Can you dance? You can tap dance? Here, I'll play a song and you dance. In his relatively short career, writer-director Derek Cien Franz has produced a body of work that has not only been critically lauded, but also wildly contrasting in its sonic demands. That makes him an ideal guest for soundtracking, a weekly podcast examining the relationship between sight and sound with me, Edith Bowman. If you're new to the show, the premise is simple. I speak to filmmakers about the music in their work with excerpts from the songs and compositions we discuss woven into the conversation. Derek announced himself to the world with Blue Valentine, a gritty, bittersweet romantic drama starring Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. Now, much of the music for the movie was provided by dreamy folk rockers Grizzly Bear, of which more later. He then worked with Mike Patton of Faith No More, Mr Bungle and Fantomas on A Place Beyond the Pines, before employing the services of seasoned composer Alexandre Desplat for his latest film, The Light Between Oceans. Starring Alicia Vikander and Michael Fassbender, it tells the story of a lighthouse keeper and his wife who adopt an infant baby they find adrift at sea. The narrative unfolds on a rugged island off the coast of Australia, which lends an epic sensibility to the action. With this in mind, Derek sought inspiration from the great cinematic melodramas when setting on a tone for Alexandra's score. Derek, welcome to Soundtracking. It's an absolute pleasure and I'm very excited to chat to you about music and film. Shall we start with Light Between Oceans and walk back if that's okay? Sure. Um, there's no contemporary tracks in there. It's Alexander Desplat. Why him, first of all? You know, I just felt with this movie that I needed a symphonic orchestral classic score because I was really dealing with intimacy and vastness of scale and I wanted to make a movie in kind of a classic, epic, romantic way. So I was looking at like Powell and Pressburger movies and uh, Douglas Sirk movies and Victor Fleming and I was thinking about making a movie in the kind of that way of making movies and you know my favorite modern classical composer is uh, is Desplat. I started talking to him about it you know thankfully he was into the script and he agreed to do it we just talked about characters and you know what their instruments were and how to identify certain characters with certain instruments and then for instance like Isabella Alicia Vikander's character would be the piano in the movie it was very clear to us because she played the piano
then we started thinking like what what does that piano sound like when it's alone on this island isolated because the movie's about isolation and people who are isolated and coming into a relationship and then what happens when that piano all of a sudden has a duet with her husband you know what I mean who's maybe the flute or something you know and then what happens when that piano goes back to the mainland and that piano is all of a sudden exposed in you know that where that that's the secret that that piano had comes out and kind of sees the light of day and and there's a reckoning with the other instruments with the rest of the people and so we just try to think of instruments as characters really was, you know, one of the most generous, talented, intuitive uh, storytellers I've ever met. It was like such uh, an immense honor to work with him, you know, and he just made the film so much better. the only time I'd ever done a film where I actually worked with a composer in this way where I was cutting the movie silently and then he would score music to it and then we would talk about it and he'd adapt it or not and you know we had this great 80-piece orchestra in New York City and I got to sit with him and his wife as they conducted it and it was like a classic time for me. my other films with Mike Patton on Pines or Grizzly Bear on Blue Valentine it was different they would compose things and and send it to me you know like Patton would compose like 48 tracks and he would send me the tracks and then send me all the stems and then I could cut the movie with his music you know and kind of shape the movie around his music and with Grizzly Bear they just gave me all the stems of their original music and then I was also able to just kind of sculpt that into the picture as well. This was a different experience and I really loved working with this plot and seeing what he could bring. Narratively, he has great narrative chops, you know? <laughs> yeah. What's the emotion? What's that feeling like to sit in a room and hear an 80-piece orchestra yeah. 
bring to life in a completely different way with their interpretation of your work. I mean, that's the essence of cinema to me. You know, I'm a I'm a filmmaker and not a painter. You know what I mean? I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a writer. I'm a I'm a filmmaker, and the filmmaking is a collaboration of all the arts. And to me, I look at the job of a director as being like a coach. You get to choose your team, and you get to then try to bring out the best in all of your players. And so when I saw the lady who played the piano, she just brought like a whole, you know, something that I could never imagine. She, she just brought her, her whole soul to the piece. And I feel like that's my job as a director is to try to bring out everyone's soul, everyone's psyche and get everyone to trust me enough. And, and I have to trust them enough to put themselves out on the screen. see like an 80-piece orchestra giving it over to the movie or where you see actors taking the script, you know, the instigations that you write into a script and taking those moments to new places. To me, that's what I live for. I feel like I'm a documentarian of fiction. So I spent all this time writing my movies, or adapting them in this case, and I spent years, you know, weeks and months and years watching the movies in my head when I'm all alone and dreaming of them. But then when I get on set and I start making it, the last thing I want to do is see what I've seen. I want to be surprised when I go on set, and I want to be surprised when I hear the music and when I see the final cut of the movie. I want it to be different than what I saw in my head. I want it to be alive. mentioned about Alicia's character being like a mm. piano you got her to learn that piece didn't you yeah yeah like once upon a time in the west the harmonica Charles Bronson I love where that non-diegetic movie score music becomes diegetic it becomes source John Woo does the same thing probably an homage to that in the killer <laughs> 
so I told Desply, I said, you know, I want to do that with the movie. I want to make uh, non-diegetic diegetic. And uh, so could you write a, a piece for Isabel to play? Alicia doesn't really know how to play the piano, so you got to keep it simple. Anyway, I think it should be simple because she's this certain type, you know, she's a bit of a naive girl. And he said, okay, fine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I owe you that piece. I owe you that piece. And then one day, all of a sudden, in my inbox, I had this... 90-second piece that he wrote called The Light Between Oceans, and it was, this is a week into shooting the movie, and it was like the North Star to me. I got that, I felt like I knew where to go with the rest of the movie. I gave it to Alicia, she learned it, we filmed scenes with her doing it, and we would listen to it on set when we would do silent takes sometimes, just to get the vibe going, just to get the emotion, because this block kind of set that for all of us. And then the footage that we shot was affected by his music, and then I could give him the movie to score later, and it wasn't a stretch. Everything was kind of referencing and inspiring itself. did you ask of him for that piece of music? What did you say you needed? Well, I gave him the script. Yeah. I told him the movie references. Yeah. You know, we talked about Isabel, the character, as being this girl who had lost two brothers in the war and who was living in a town that was grieving, but yet that she was still alive and there was still a light to her, right? There was still uh, this need to uh, bring life back into the world after all this death and grief and how she... Uh, you know, she had this incredible spirit, and we just talked about her. And then I said, yeah, we just need something that she can play. And he read the script, you know, and again, he has an instinct for narrative, for story, and for characters. And he, he just knocked it out of the park, I thought.
when you're editing the film, do you use temp score? Do you did you put anything under there before you had the final score from the splash? I did put some temp score. I mean, sound the sound design was a hugely important aspect uh, to this movie, uh, and I had you know some great collaborators. Uh, my friend Craig Sutherland, my friend Tony Volante uh, in New York. You know, I, I had a whole sound recorder's unit that would just go out and record sound for me of the waves of the wind. Because when you're there and you're in the midst of this kind of natural primal landscape, it affects you, you know what I mean? And I thought we could create a symphony of just wind in this movie. Janus, my island, my life, Isabel, my love. Every day we spend together. One day, there came a sudden cry. And, you know, it was important to me to not have the movie be wall-to-wall music, you know. You need it, you need some breath in there, you need some, you need some silence, you know what I mean? So, so that you can have a dynamic in the movie. So in the editing room, though, you get incredibly insecure in the editing room. And once you put score on something, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, it starts working. It's like an easy crutch, you know, in a, when you're making a movie, like put an awesome song on it and all of a sudden it feels better. But you're just deluding yourself. So yeah, I used a little bit of temp score, like before I had the rest of Alexander's uh, piano pieces, I was using Eric Satie, the Gymnopedes, and uh, Nocianis, right? I think yeah. that's how you say them. I used, uh, you know, some Beethoven in there, just classical music. Of course, there's like uh, Taverner, which I kept in the movie. all this music in the movie and then I had the chance to show Alexander the movie and I said you tell me because I respect you so much I was like you tell me what's the best situation for you do you want to hear the movie with all my temp score or would you like me to take it out he was like well I'd like you to take it out but he's like you won't he was like no one ever does no one's ever brave enough to take out the 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 music and then I have to fight temp score my whole time and other composers you know Mike Patton used to tell me that that people get into temp love with with their music so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm going to try that. So I stripped all the music off of the movie. 
and I had a two and a half hour movie that I showed Alexander and his great our great music supervisor um, Susanna Perek and uh, I sat upstairs in my editing suite and I waited for the two hours or whatever that he was watching it downstairs and I was certain you know I'd go into these narratives in my brain about what's going wrong all the time you know uh, like the tragedies that befall my characters like always happen to me in my imagination too so I was sitting there sure that going down the path that you know he was going to come upstairs and quit on me because he thought the movie didn't work anyway he came upstairs and he said your movie doesn't need music and i said you are not getting out of this you you're gonna you're gonna complete the job you started to do it so anyway he he did and it was great i think i would do that again it's actually stronger in a movie i think if you can cut it and be brave enough to cut it with no music what a wonderful thing to hear from him though it was great yeah 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 it was validating to uh, yeah to have someone you respect so much you want to work on it talk about Place Beyond the Pines. You mentioned Mike Patton, Faith No More, obviously, mm. who I loved as a kid growing up. Me too. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I found Faith No More first, obviously, yeah. with Epic. Faith No More had the big success. Warner Brothers gave Mr. Bungle a big contract, and John Zorn produced that first album, and I got that album for Christmas. I think I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, and I got it, and I was so confounded by it. I loved heavy metal music as a kid, but yet this was something way further out than anything I had ever been exposed to. I went to go see a, a Mr. Bungle concert that spring, and I'll never forget, they were all wearing masks up on stage. And Patton up on stage had a bondage mask on, like the gimp from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. This is before Pulp Fiction, though. And he had horse blinders on the side. And there was a moment in the show where he got down on his knees and he started licking this bald security guard's head. You know, his tongue came out through the little zipper. And from that moment forward, he was my hero, you know? <laughs> I used to show up to his concerts, you know, for years and years. And when I moved to New York and went to the Knitting Factory and I'd go see Fantomas or I'd go see him doing some solo, you know, crazy stuff alone. And 
I'd always like have videotapes with me of like my student films that I've been making or my home movies, and I just always wanted to work with him, you know. And I was that that guy who was like waiting at at the stage after the show. And one time I met Trevor Dunn, the bassist for Bungle and and Phantomas, and uh, you know I didn't meet Patton. And I was like, Trevor, would you? I just would love to work with you guys. You know, would you give this to Mike? He was he was like, sure, man. You know, and he he was kind of annoyed that I was that guy. Anyway, years later, I was in a casting meeting talking about actors, and a talent agent came up to me and said, I have this guy that you have to meet. He's been on the scene for a while doing stuff, but he's starting to do movies now. Uh, His name's Mike Patton. He used to be in this band called Faith No More. You might have remembered him, you know, from the... I was just like, stop. Don't say another word. I know way more about him than you do, okay? He's like my dad, okay? And he never knew it, right? I've been following him my whole life. I was like, can you set up Mike with me? And and I met with him, and uh, he's just, he was my dad, and he kind of became my brother, you know? And uh, what, a, what a gift to work with him, and I, and I really hope I can work with him again. That is a brilliant story. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Please tell me you just turned up for at least one of those things in the gimp mask waiting to meet him at stage door. There you go. Really freak him out. Completely freak him out. (laughs) How did the relationship work between the two of you then on that film in terms of when he came into the process and the conversations that you had with regards to what you needed for place? Yeah, you know, we talked about it and then when I finished shooting, the, you know, going into production, I was just crazy because, like, Ryan started doing Gangster Squad, that movie, and that pushed our production back 10 weeks. So it was like, I just had to, like, rush to get that movie into production. So I started talking to Mike when I finished production on that movie and it was madness shooting that movie. It was really, really challenging. Like, I remember the first budget came in for that movie. They said, okay, it's going to be $19.5 million, and you're going to have 33 days to shoot it. And I was like, I can't do it for that. So I eventually shot it for like $10.5 million for 50 days. And there was crazy stunts in it, and we just were doing impossible things. Like, I knew at that time when Ryan got Gangster Squad, there was an idea like, should we punt this for a year? But I knew that if I punted it for a year, I would never be so naive as to make that movie again or so stupid because i you have to have like some kind of blind ambition and and faith you know just what i mean in, just jump in just go just get in there and do it because if i thought about it if i was got too logical about that movie it would just fall under its own weight you know so i just went for it and then Mike flew out to New York. I started by sending him stills from the movie, show him scenes, and then we would just talk. And then he just started feeding me stuff, you know? He would go back to San Francisco, and every couple of weeks I'd get a batch of tracks from him. Like, I still have these tracks that are like these rare Mike Patton tracks. I mean, as a kid, I used to always just want the bootleg patent stuff you know what I mean and now in the dream I was living the dream absolutely (laughs) I mean that's the thing if you have an opportunity to make a dream come true you should absolutely do it
I never had the experience with the, with the orchestra or anything because he was just doing it in his own studio in Oz. And I would get all these recordings, these dispatchments from Oz, and uh, it was amazing. expect from the end result of what sounds like a hard run of it it's an incredible film yeah but thank maybe you. that's part of why it's so good yeah absolutely absolutely you can have like a completely smooth great experience everything goes your way and you look at it and it's kind of lifeless and dead and there's no angst to it pines was made out of pure angst was miserable to go through, to experience, but it's all up there on the screen. And I usually end up living the drama on my screen when I'm making a movie, you know, I feel it so deeply. So Pines, oh, that's all in there, yeah. you know? That was the feeling I had making it. And then Hall and Oates. Like, I never had any intention to put Hall and Oates in my movie, although I loved Hall and Oates as a kid. I remember buying that Maneater 45 and going to my grandparents' house one night and just playing it on their record player all night, just thinking I'd never heard a song like that when I was a kid. And then I was shooting one day with Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Gosling, and Ben, you know, improv this line. He was like, you're kind of like, we're kind of like Hall and Oates. Or, or Ryan says, we're kind of like Hall and Oates. And then Ben says, yeah, but you're the good-looking one. I'm the, I'm the short guy with the mustache or whatever. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it just became, that's it. We do what we do. But when we do it together, shit to hell. I'm just saying. Not since Holland Oates has there been such a team. <laughs> Which one do you... Oh, I know. So I gotta be the dark curly-haired guy, you gotta be the good-looking one? I guess that's about right. There's also a moment in the movie where Ben came up with this line, if you ride like lightning, you're going to crash like thunder. In Italian, the translation of the film became like thunder. So, like, that's an improv.
Ryan and I used to always talk about that. You know, there's the, all of our favorite moments in movies were always the moments that weren't scripted, like Dustin Hoffman, Midnight Cowboy, I'm walking here. You know, apparently that's improv, you know what I mean? You're talking to me from Taxi Driver, those are improv. So I think if you can embrace the improvs, you know, sometimes countries are gonna name your film based on the line of the improv. And then I come over here and you're playing Hall & Oates and that just came from, from me. Improv! Yes, from life. The rest of the music that's used in that film, though, aside from Mike's score, there's a bit of Morricone in there, I think, There as is, well. which I heard for the first time uh, from Patton's label, Ipecac. He released uh, Ennio Morricone anthology, but it was a two-disc uh, set of, like, all these kind of rare Mor Morricone tracks, and that track was on that. So Patton introduced me to that song, and I felt like it was fitting. With listening to like Phantomas with the director's cut or going to see Bungle shows, they always did movie covers, you know, and I always thought his music sounded like movie scores, yeah. you know, and I know how much he loves movies and the, the Italian uh, aesthetic, I guess, of, of movie scores. Valentine, you have Ryan singing as well. Mm, Ryan has just the most beautiful voice. I think I first heard him singing in Lars and the Real Girl. Uh, he's like up in the tree singing the song, and I remember meeting him after that screening one time. I was like, man, you are like Elvis in 1956. You know, Elvis apparently, I don't know if it's true, but like the first thing he ever recorded was one of those record booths, and he made yeah. a song for his mother on a record. To me, that's what Ryan, when he sings, reminds me of Elvis singing love songs to his mom. For the way you look at me Oh, it's not the only one I see He is very, very extraordinary 
is even more than anyone that you adore and love. Was that something that you asked him to do, or was it something he kind of brought to the table? Well, so uh, with Blue Valentine, I, I had always written that Dean, his character, was a musician. But as I like to do, I don't tell him what instrument to play. So I told Ryan, I was like, what do you, th-? you know, when he, once he signed up, I was like, what do you think, uh, what instrument you want to play? You know, he's got to be good at something. And Ryan said, how about a ukulele? And I was like, can you think of another instrument maybe? Uh, and, and he was like, no way, man, ukuleles are the best. I was like, okay, I don't know. I'm not really feeling it right now. I was like, but all right, let's think about it. We, got, we had like a year before we started shooting. And then about a month went by, and I got a voice message. I checked my phone. I had a voice message from Ryan, and it was him with the ukulele. He had learned that song, You Always Hurt the Ones You Love. You always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. message and it was just so beautiful it was exactly what it is in the movie and I just called him up and I was like you were right I don't doubt you again I was like the only thing I'm gonna ask you to do now is if you ever see Michelle just don't let her in on it don't tell her that you play the ukulele don't sing her this song that'll be your secret and so then I went and talked to Michelle and I said Michelle you know a couple weeks later I was like you gotta have some kind of special talent you know, she was like, well, I used to tap dance. And I was like, great. Get practiced on it a little bit, you know, over the next year. And I said, and whatever you do, if you ever see Ryan, just don't let him in on it. And so we had this scene one night where we had blocked out 12 blocks of this town called Honesdale. I think 12 blocks or so in, in Pennsylvania. And we had no money to light it. My producers were, were all freaking out. And what my DP, Andre Perek, decided to do was go to every shop owner and pay them 20 bucks to keep their lights on that night. So it was the lights through the window that would illuminate our movie. And I let Ryan and Michelle walk up and down the street all night just getting to know each other because we had done so many things. They had so many secrets, and they just got to know each other. Where'd you grow up? What was the first time you lost your virginity? What was your first job? What was your mom like? What was your dad like? And they all knew their backstory, so they could just explore, and we just filmed from behind. I made sure that we were always following behind them. And then I told Ryan, when you get to the bridal store, you know, the husband and wife wedding dress store. We put their wedding dresses, their future wedding dresses and suits in that store. And I said, when you get to that store, ask her about what her special talent is, and this is going to be the time for you to play the ukulele. He's like, okay. So we're walking by, we're getting close, and you know, I made sure I had enough film because we're shooting 16 millimeter. I had like 10 minute takes or something there. And he's getting close, and he was like, so do you have any special talents? And she was like, I can tap dance. He was like, okay, you tap dance and I'll sing. And they start playing the song, and what happened in front of the, the lens was just, to me, was just magic. The DP, Andre wasn't quite ready for it, and he was like kind of moving back, and the camera was shaking, and there was traffic coming, and we had to block traffic. But what was happening to me felt like, um, you know, an iconic moment. 
shapes. And then we did it again. We set it up again uh, to make it like more of a smooth camera. But it didn't have that urgency or that immediacy. They knew what was coming, and the fact that they didn't know what was coming created something. So I used the more technically imperfect take because the soul was better. So I'll always do that. You know, to me with music too, it's like overproduced stuff. Sometimes you lose the soul in it. That's why I like my favorite music is Depression-era music from America in the 1930s, you know, where these artists, they'd live an entire life working in a coal mine or something, and then they'd have one day in one room, and they'd record one or two songs, and they'd have one take, and they would play it, and they would leave. And that would be an encapsulation of their entire life in that moment. That's ultimately the inspiration for me when I make movies, is how to find something that can happen once that you can't repeat. Some blues are or just blues, mine are the miners' blues. You say they are blues, these old miners' blues. Got coal in my hair, got coal in my shoes. Why would Grizzly Bear the right? people musically for Blue Valentine? You know, my film professor, Phil Solomon, turned me on to them. And first off, all their songs to me, from what I could understand, were songs about relationships. So that worked. Baby, I've got silver and I've got gold. But when push comes to shove, this is getting old. Secondly, they, they had these two beautiful voices, Daniel Rosen and Edward, uh, I forget how you say his last name, Drizzotti. And I felt like the movie uh, was a real duet between these two voices, between Dean and Cindy, between a man and a woman. And I felt like the duets between those two singers could like help the movie. such classically trained musicians, Grizzly Bear, but yet they're making very modern music. And I thought Blue Valentine was a movie that at one part was classic, very classic love story, and another part was like a modern kind of taking the gauze off the lens and just seeing, you know, relationships for being what they are and just kind of, you know, the ugliness of it.
just thought they worked, you know. And when I first made that movie and was like showing cuts, I had a lot of people suggest, they're like, the music isn't, you need a score, you need a traditional score. But I was always looking at a film like The Graduate or something, that kind of iconic Simon and Garfunkel score that adds to the zeitgeist. Like Harold and Maud. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Derek, I could talk to you for hours. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, please, can we do another one when you have another film to talk about? Let's do it. So much fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks. It was awesome. That's You and Me by Penny and the Quarters, rounding off a joyous conversation with writer, director and music lover Derek Cienfrance. You and me, baby. My huge thanks and gratitude to Derek for taking the time to talk to us. His anecdote about Mike Patton licking a bald security guard's head through the zipper of a gimp mask will stay with me for a very long time. His latest movie, The Light Between Oceans, is on general release now with Alexander Desplat's score available via our good friends at Lakeshore Records. Now you can find the tracks we played by heading to edithbowman.com where you'll also be able to catch up with every single episode of Soundtracking. It's already becoming a bit of a who's who of modern cinema with Ron Howard, Todd Solins, Andrea Arnold and Richard Linklater amongst many who've shared their musical tastes. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do rate us on iTunes if you get a moment. Next up is a man who's directed many music videos, feature films and now adds documentary to that list. Matt Whitecross, who directed the recent Oasis documentary, Supersonic. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.